Thank you for tuning in to the Mile 40 podcast. I am Beshoy Tadros, the author of Break Barriers and Audacious, both of which are sold on Amazon. And I invite you to join me as I engage with guests to discuss those bounce back moments that we encounter on our personal journey. Mile 40 is a forum to learn about how athletes, professionals, and leaders of all backgrounds stare down moments in life where the only option is to rise up. The Mile 40 podcast strives to remind listeners that the comeback is always greater than the setback. Hey all, it's me, Bishoy. As a marathon runner and endurance athlete, I've come to understand the importance of properly fueling your body for preparation and recovery. Every day you get a shot at success. How you start your day typically paints a picture of what the rest of the day will look like. Start your day with a super convenient, healthy, and delicious nutritional win. Meal one by Creatures of Habit. Overnight oatmeal packed with 30 grams of plant-based protein, chia, flax, and pumpkin seeds. Vitamin D3, omega-3s, a probiotic, and digestive enzymes made in under one minute. Stop wasting time or worrying about what to eat as your first meal of the day. Start with meal one. Visit creaturesofhabit.com, creatures spelled with a K, and use code MILE40 for 15% off a one-time purchase or the first subscription order payment. Welcome back to the Mile 40 podcast. I am excited to get today underway. We have a very special guest on hand today. I'd like to introduce you all to Nate Checkets. Nate is the co-founder and CEO of Roan, a men's performance lifestyle brand founded in 2014. Prior to Roan, Nate worked for and consulted with some of the biggest technology and entertainment properties in the world, including Cisco, the NFL, Legends, FanVision, and SportRadar. Nate is also an avid entrepreneur who founded and launched four companies before the age of 30. We are going to dive into all of that. Um, I gave Nate a little heads up with regards to how the Mile 40 podcast runs and, and how we like to really navigate through those pit to peak moments in life. And I can't wait to dive in. Nate, thank you for joining me today. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to great to be on. And I should be rocking my Mile 40 uh, shirt. I have it. It's uh, It's in my office and I appreciated you sending that. Absolutely, man. Um, so this is really exciting for me. I've been following your brand journey for some time right now. And um, I'm so proud, number one, that you're coming onto the show. Uh, but number two, uh, I'm honored to have the opportunity to uh, have you share how you got here um, and how this all began. So we're going to talk a little about your business journey, but we're also going to mix it in a little bit with your own entrepreneurial journey because I feel like the two have merged. So maybe let's start with regards to um, uh, you know when life started from you as a businessman. Yeah, well, I, you know, I was an entrepreneur at a at a young age, and uh, it really I wouldn't have say that I I knew had what that meant, but I <laughs> my parents would say I was just always selling something, so. When I was a kid, my grandparents lived, um, they had a, a cherry tree in their yard. So we'd climb up the cherry tree, pull the cherries down, go down on the sidewalk and sell cherries and lemonade. And this just became like a summer routine. And I think I started this when I was like six. But then they moved and they got closer to a golf course. There was like a golf course within uh, walking distance. And so, like, I mean, times have changed so much. I don't think I could ever. <laughs> 
like let this happen now uh, with my kids. But I would go and I'd just like be bothering the neighbors. And then I'd watch, I'd sit and watch golfers and I watched them hit their balls into the water and they'd be frustrated. And I was like, I could just dive in and get those balls. Like I'm wearing a swimsuit <laughs> anyways, it's summer. So I just started like diving in and like offering the golfers their balls back. And I was like, wait a minute, <laughs> like I could sell these. There's so many balls down here. So I started co- like diving into the ponds and collecting the golf balls and setting up a table. And I, I think it was like three for a dollar. And you know, it was the best golf ball deal they could get. And I had a zero cost of inventory um, without really knowing what that meant. Um, the only issue I had is that the, the ranger did not like having a kid who was half naked running around his golf course. So he would chase me off the golf course. And I realized as long as I wasn't on the golf course, I couldn't get in trouble. So I'd like set the table just close enough to the, to the boundaries. And, you know, I remember like one day we made like 50 bucks because I had my sister come out in a big bow holding the sign, like golf balls and lemonade. And I'm like, this is just, this is so easy. You know, this is like, so I was, I didn't, I didn't think like, oh, I'm going to grow up to be a businessman. I just wanted to have enough money to like buy toys and snacks and, and, um, and have like a arcade money effectively. (laughs) Um, and, uh, I was kind of wired that way. And so when I was 15 years old, my parents were really great. I, you know, I grew up in, um, in a really well-to-do town in Connecticut, like half of the town are finance bankers. And we were a bit of an anomaly in this town. My parents have six kids, so I've got five siblings. And um, even though my parents were successful, they really wanted to instill upon us a value of hard work. So um, we would always attend some kind of kind of summer camp. And when I was 15, my mom said, okay, your, your father and I have decided you really wanted to go to this football camp. Um, you need to pay half of the summer camp fee. And I remember thinking, that's so ridiculous. Nobody in our town has asked their kids to pay anything for their summer camp. Um, but I was like, all right, I'll figure it out. So uh, I was like, I could start mowing lawns. I know how to do that. I mow our lawn. I can, I can go around mowing lawns. And I think I did it like for two Saturdays and I realized this does not scale. The only way to make more money is to have more time. And I can't like, create more Saturdays. So um, I got to think of something else. And I said to my parents, I'm like, I got to think of something else. And I realized, you know what, what I should do is I should start my own summer camp in my parents' backyard. And I'll do that for the first three weeks of summer. And then I'll have plenty of money by the time football camp comes around. And um, so I went around to the local soccer fields with like a handmade flyer that I had photocopied at the library. And it was like, I called it, I called the camp Boys World of Adventure. And it was for kids ages three to seven. And I was going to teach them how to play sports in my parents' backyard. And I, there was only one problem. I forgot to tell my parents about it. Huh. So uh, my mom started getting phone calls about the camp. And she was like, do you want to tell me what this is? And I was <laughs> like, well, you said I had to pay for summer camp. So this is what I'm going to do. So the first summer we ran for three weeks. We had 12 kids a week. And I, I think I charged $125. In fact, I know I charged $125. But by the end, we were completely full. I was booking out to the max capacity my parents would let me have a week, which I think was like 50 kids. 
We had a full organization. I hired friends, um, my siblings as camp counselors, and we were making like 50 grand over the course of three, four weeks. And that would, that camp ran for eight years. So that's kind of when I realized I'm like, all right, I think I'm a little bit of an entrepreneur and that's always what got me excited. And, um, but that's, that's what it was like growing up. I just, you know, I, I liked creating things. Always be selling. Wow. This is, that's (laughs) that's crazy, man. Um, And then that's awesome. And that gives a lot of good background with regards to um, how your mind was wired at a young age. And, um, you know, kudos to your parents for um, instilling that in you all and and kind of, um, you know, arguably that may have been the differentiating factor. Um, You know, there's no question. Yeah. Yeah. You, you had to start young with regards to getting your mind working and, and running with regards to finding out the opportunity and, and, and seeing where it lies. Um, so let, let's transition a little bit from there. Um, education, where'd you go to school? So I went to BYU out in Provo, Utah. I, I grew up in Connecticut, so it was a bit of a, a change of pace, very different uh, culturally from where I grew up. And um, I loved, loved my time there. I took a two-year break to serve a mission for my church in Rome, uh, Italy. You don't get to pick where you go. So I, I think I won the lottery that way um, and, uh, and came back. And I had thought because of where I had grown up, I, you know, I, I guess I have to work in finance or consulting. I didn't really know what that meant. I started doing research and internships. And I was like, this is the worst. Like, I hate this. Is it either... Um, and you know, it's like, if you go into investment banking or finance, you're basically working in Excel all day. And if you go into consulting, you're working in PowerPoint all day. So I started to joke that like, my only job requirement is I need more than one Microsoft Office like <laughs> level of exposure. I just can't only work in one Microsoft Office program. But then I had an idea my junior year of college to start um, a software company, a mobile software company in and around food ordering. The only issue is we were just so early in doing this. So um, we created uh, this, this platform called Manja and um, we got venture backed. We ended up making it to the state semifinals. Uh, uh, in the business plan competition. So we got like a little bit of funding and then we got some real venture funding to go and do this. And, um, and it was crazy. We were one of the first uh, natural language processing platforms that would allow you to send a text message. We would basically interpret what the text message said, said including any typos or errors. It would convert into a fax that got printed at local restaurants. Wow. And then the restaurants would make the order and we would handle all of the credit card processing behind the scenes. Um, we so, quickly realized... Uh, no, go ahead. I'm going to cut you off. Go ahead. Yeah. We quickly realized that there were like... The, the biggest challenge we had is we're trying to grow two audiences. We're trying to get more restaurants and we're trying to get more consumers. I didn't have experience in doing any of this. I had no idea what I was doing, including I wasn't a coder or a programmer. So I was like, getting people to contribute time to building out this platform. And we hired like our first developer. And um, and I mean, there were so many issues with it that I was like, you know, what would be easier? Because I had grown up, my dad worked in professional sports. So I was like, it would be so much easier to do this in a stadium because you go into a stadium, you have a fixed audience 
And then you have one concessionaire who's usually running the whole building. So you just basically sign one contract and then you have 20,000 people that are coming. Um, and so we moved into doing sports and stadiums. We got 15 arenas and stadiums and it was really exciting. And, um, and the problem was the big investor that wrote the check for this business. And it wasn't, we didn't raise that much money compared to tech companies. We raised a million dollars, which was like, I thought we had, you know, completely won the lottery. Uh, they decided to fire the CEO right in the middle of this. And they were like, Nate, you can run the company again. And the only wow. issue is, is that I like, I was, I think 24, 25 at the time, I had no idea what I was doing. And by the time they handed the company back over to me, we were hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt and had like an average monthly burn that, you know, obviously we couldn't service. So it was a really terrifying, scary experience. And that was, you know, that was the first time as an entrepreneur I had faced like a sense of real failure, you know, because everything before it just worked. Like you just, yeah. you know, it was, it was easy. Um, and so we ended up having to basically sell the assets of the company. Um, and we sold it. We, we ended up selling that to the 49ers. And um, we had all these really cool patents. And that was, you know, that was my first real kind of venture backed growth company experience. Wow. You know, you, you kind of answered the question that I was going to ask you, but I was going to say, you know, selling golf balls that you found in in the water and then sports camps and then uh, like a tech company. And I was going to ask you, you know, where did the coding come from? Did you learn how to code? Um, and so, um, you know, I think when you were 24, so at a young age, you realized the value of leveraging, um, you know, third parties to handle the things that perhaps you weren't, you know, set out to handle, especially, you know, you even mentioned, you know, trying to dip into finance for a second there. So clearly this wasn't even your forte. This wasn't your field. Um, remind me, was the idea your idea or was it? Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it was my idea. And it was, you know, we were just so early. Like we, the iPhone came out right in the middle of this. We started uh, and created one of the first iPhone applications, but it was just, you know, we were, we were, I was still in the state of Utah. And at the time, now Utah is like, I think the third largest producer of tech unicorns in the country. It, it's something like behind, you know, it's behind New York, California, and Texas. So maybe it's fourth largest, but it is, it's a huge beacon of venture capital. At the time, though, it was not. There was no real venture, you know, there were, there were very small venture funds in the state. So we couldn't raise the capital that was needed to compete with massive uh, companies that were raising 15, 20. I remember one company announced a, a fundraise of like 50 million bucks. I was like, how are we going to compete with these mm. companies? And then eventually seamless and you know, there's been consolidation in the space. But it was definitely a challenge uh, to, to face, um, you know, to, to face the, the environment at the time. But it was, it was a great experience. It was like, Going to business school around yeah, running a growth business by fire, essentially. No question. Yeah. Um, you know, there. Wow. I, we could probably spend a whole show talking about this, but um, for the sake of time, let me ask you. You know, you had you had um, you know run through your entrepreneur, entrepreneurial journey and gone about it with different 
types of organizations and different types of companies. What other uh, ventures did you take on before you started with Throne? Um, I want to touch on those really quick, just to kind of get an understanding of the diverse diversity um, across the different types of companies that you worked for. And then we'll dive a little bit into um, where you are today. Yeah. So right after uh, the um, Manja experience, I started my own consulting firm. And we were consulting in sports and tech because that's what I knew. And um, ended up building some of the UI and UX for really cool tech platforms um, in and around the sports space. And my wife and I launched our, our, our own little company that was one of the first ever um, uh, iPad applications that was targeted at families that wanted to help teach their kids values and principles. And so that was a really cool experience, but it was, it was mostly just tinkering. I mean, that's the thing. When people say to me, I think I want to start my own company, or I think I'm an entrepreneur, I'm like, you may want to take a step back because I'm not sure. I mean, there's so many different kinds of entrepreneurs. I was the type that I just I wasn't afraid to risk and fail, and um, and that got me burned many many times in my life. And I at you know at the end of uh, of some of these experiences, I've questioned. I'm like, is this really? Maybe I need to reframe my decision making. Here and it all played a role in leading me to um, starting Roan, which came after um, after you know a lot of these different experiences, including I ended up landing a job at the NFL uh, from you know from my experience of building uh, a couple of these uh, consulting clients. What were you going to do in the NFL? So I got hired to run the sponsorship strategy. Uh, division. And that was because there was a huge focus on tech. At the time, um, there was this opportunity to reframe the uh, sideline deal um, at the NFL, which was one of the most lucrative uh, opportunities from a league level sponsorship. And the other thing is that we had a client um, that had had the entire technology category locked up in the NFL. And so we had the opportunity to do some analysis, some work, and those deals ended up tripling the amount of revenue the league was generating from technology partners. Wow. Um, and it was a great experience. Uh, I learned a lot. I met incredible people. But the biggest issue that I had is I realized I'm not a corporate guy. I, you know, I went from like basically wearing t-shirt, shorts, sandals, you know, doing fun tech stuff. Um, to all of a sudden, the NFL is suit and tie every single day. And it is sometimes referred to as the no fun league for a reason. Um, so uh, even though I love football and grew up playing football, uh, I realized you know maybe working in a corporate environment is just not the place for me. I love it. You, know, you talk about the fact that um, as an entrepreneur, you've assumed a lot of risks. You've admittedly failed you know, more than once. Um, and you've continued to rise up in, in the wake of those failures. And I feel like, you know, even just in the pursuit of life in general, that that's such a big element to have. Can we talk a little bit about, um, you know, how you built up that risk aversion? Was that something instilled in you at a young age, again, through maybe watching your parents or other entrepreneurs around you? Um, or, you know, did it come from somewhere else? Yeah, I, I give my parents the credit for everything uh, that way. And, you know, 
I think that, like I say, there's five, I have five siblings. We're not all um, the same that way, but I do think part of it is birth order. I'm a middle child. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the interesting thing about being a middle child in a large family is it's not like you're forgotten, but you are left on your own quite a bit to figure things out. You know, when you only have, I don't know if you have any children. I have three. I have one um, daughter. Okay. So, you know, your, your daughter, she gets, she gets your attention, you know, maybe more so than if you had six. Yeah. And, um, I, I think in, in my case, um, my mom and my dad, they had a lot going on with the older two children. And then, you know, consequently with the, the, uh, with the younger children as well. And so I think I was just left to figure things out a lot. And my parents were very encouraging of just, they were always like, just give it a try. What, what's the worst that could happen? You know, my mom has this thing that she calls the dreaded what ifs. Sometimes we start thinking about, well, what if this goes wrong? What if, you know, what if I can't, uh, accomplish this task that I set out? And she always says, you've got to finish the thought because usually it's not as bad as you fear it will be. And you realize there's usually a solution that you just haven't thought of. But where the fear and the anxiety comes is just that dangling what if. And if you don't finish that thought, you can't ever overcome it. And so I just, I think I, I think I learned to say, it's not going to be that bad. I know I can. I know I can overcome this. And, you know, that you talk about mile 40 or running. Yeah. The first marathon I ever ran, I was not prepared for. I think the longest distance I had ever run was 12 miles. But I realized I'm like, what's the worst that could happen? I'll just go and, you know, I'm sure I can finish it. And it was painful. It was really painful. But I finished and I felt great about it and even convinced myself to, you know, run, run more after that. So, um, I, I think, I think it's human nature to fear the unknown. And my parents definitely led me to, to say, you know, you can, you can overcome hard things. You can do hard things and you can, you know, you just have to finish the thought. Yeah. No, I think that marathon mindset is something that really, um, people don't think about. And to your point, you know, I tell people all the time, you know, Anyone can run a marathon. Anyone can do 26 miles. And, you know, where you realize what you're really made of is between miles 20 and 26. Um, 100%. And, yeah. Yeah. And it, it's that, that mental period. And, 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 and that's where you're kind of really unleashing your potential and really finding the strength within both physically, emotionally, mentally, you know, so on and so forth. I, I want to ask you and, you know, maybe it was within this period. Maybe it came after. What was your, you know, absolute most bottomed out moment on your business journey? Was it with Manja at that point when you kind of incurred that debt? I think that was a really, really difficult time for me. Um, you know, when I, when the kind of investors handed the company back over to me, they were like, you're going to have to cut the company in half. You're going to have to fire half the team. And you basically can only keep the most essential roles and you're going to have to figure out how to raise more money. When I realized I couldn't do that and I could basically only get the investor some portion of their funds back and I was going to make no money after, you know, 4 years of grueling hard work and, you know, dreaming of what this company could become and having to fire friends. Not to mention go back to my wife, we had one child, one child on the way. We started young. Um I just 
I felt like I had failed so miserably. And I remember sitting in my basement. We had this like kind of raw basement space. And I was sitting on a chair. I had like brought a whiteboard down and I was like, okay, I got to get to work. I got to figure this out. I put myself into this mess. I've got to figure out how to get out of it. And um, it was a really, yeah, it was a low point. But I look back at that time and I think, so much of my resiliency was forged in that moment and i got to decide you know what am i made of am i gonna am i gonna pack it in am i gonna fold and i've had you know micro moments of that over and over again but it really does teach you a lot about yourself of what you do when things get tough and for context for the listeners how old are you now i just turned 40 so, okay, so it's perfect time to come on the 40 podcast hey all it's me Bishoy. As a marathon runner and endurance athlete, I've come to understand the importance of properly fueling your body for preparation and recovery. Every day, you get a shot at success. How you start your day typically paints a picture of what the rest of the day will look like. Start your day with a super convenient, healthy, and delicious nutritional win. Meal one by Creatures of Habit. Overnight oatmeal packed with 30 grams of plant-based protein, chia, flax, and pumpkin seeds. Vitamin D3, omega-3s, a probiotic, and digestive enzymes made in under one minute. Stop wasting time or worrying about what to eat as your first meal of the day. Start with meal one. Visit creaturesofhabit.com, creatures spelled with a K, and use code MILE40 for 15% off a one-time purchase or the first subscription order payment. So that was about 16 years ago where you assumed that role. And, you know, a lot of people maybe don't know you personally, but Roan is so well recognized now. So let's talk a little bit about um, how Roan got started um, and how you've built it to, you know, what it's become. Thank you. So, yeah, Roan started um, about nine years ago and um, it, it started, <laughs> I was, I was at the league. I was at the NFL. And, um, you know, the idea for it happened longer than nine years ago. But um, I was sitting there at the league offices and uh, Budweiser, who was a league partner, spent, sent this box of product for an event that we had coming up. And in the box, there was some product for the women of the office. And it was Lululemon. And the men in the office got Nike gear. Hmm. And I, I was like, I just kind of made this offhand comment. I'm like, that's weird because Nike makes women's product. And I think Lululemon makes some men's product because I got a pair of Lululemon sweatpants for Christmas. And the guy next to me was like, well, do you, you don't tell me you wear Lululemon. And I was like, well, I mean, I wouldn't say that I like wear Lululemon. I have a pair of sweatpants because I knew exactly where this was going. And he goes, well, I mean, do you buy your underwear at Victoria's Secret? <laughs> and I mean, I was like, this is so ridiculous. I just thought, what a, you know, what a, what a ridiculous question. But it led me to kind of look at the retail industry because I had already made up my mind at that point. I knew I wanted to do something else. I wanted to build a brand. I didn't know what category it was going to be in. Um, but I was fascinated with what was happening in the direct to consumer space. And, um, and so I started talking to my brother in law. About this, because he had kind of brought up this idea that no, you know, it, these are his words, not mine. No man should ever wear a brand called Lululemon. 
And, <laughs> um, and so we started talking about the fact that everything is changing in retail. There's a huge push towards e-com and, um, and there's an opportunity for basically any category in e-commerce to make a mark. If you move fast enough, you acquire the customers online via social media, Google, et cetera. And you can build an e-com brand that you know, is really interesting. And there's a lot of investor dollars going into this right now. So we built kind of a quick plan. We started to see if we could develop some product. We launched. And um, I mean, there's so many things. You want to talk about hardship. Two weeks before we launched, um, I got diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, by the way, right in the middle of the failure with Manja. Um, it was a terrifying thing to go through. Um, and I had been managing it for maybe uh, four or five years when this happened. So um, I, I, but, but the, it, the disease has come so long, you know, so far um, since since my initial diagnosis and and since this time. But I ended up having a severe low blood sugar in the middle of the night two wow. weeks before um, the launch, and I ended up getting rushed to the hospital. I don't even remember um, having this uh, low blood sugar. I had severe seizures. You know, if not for the quick actions of my wife, I wouldn't be here. Um, I ended up waking up in the hospital. And I remember thinking, what on earth am I doing? Why am I trying to build a business while I have a full-time job? I hadn't quit quit yeah, my full-time job, but I was staying up until you know two in the morning, waking up, catching a 6 a.m. train. And I just I was pushing my body too hard. And um and I was so underslept that uh it, my body didn't wake up when I had this low blood sugar. So there was that. And then my brother-in-law, who's my co-founder, his house caught on fire a week before the launch because of a, an oven malfunction. And so we're sitting here, we're like, okay, we both almost died this week. Maybe we, maybe we should not do this. Um, but you know, when, as soon as we launched, we knew we were onto something because the way people responded to the brand, the clothing, I'm incredibly proud of our product. I think our product speaks for itself. People just started buying more and more of it. And um, you know, there's definitely been ups and downs since then. But uh but it, you know, there was <laughs> just getting it off the ground was an enormous effort. Wow. I mean, that's a lot to take in at once there. Um and all the signs probably were kind of maybe maybe making you question uh the direction that you were headed in there. Um Wow, I don't even know where to begin. So let, let's talk a little bit about um, it. The company now is nine years old, um, and let's talk a little bit about how you've scaled it, and and um, you know what your future expectations are right now. Uh, you know, in terms of just where do you want the company to go, um, and are you keeping a close eye on you know Lululemon and and trying to you know are they constantly coming up in your conversations as you build, or was it just you know where the conversation got started in terms of where there is a gap? Yeah, I mean, look, there's always comp competition in the market and I think when I started it was, you know, there was it wasn't just Lulu, it was, you know, all of the brands that were out there that were doing interesting things, but um we've really become so focused on building our audience and our community and products that we think are interesting and most of the time 
were driven and inspired entirely not by our competition, but by our customer and our community. That is where we, you know, I think when you, it's so easy to spend time on competitors and we see it like, you know, we will get, it's funny, we launched this pant called the commuter pant and then a commuter shirt. We've had tremendous success with it. We now have three competitors who didn't even decide to change the name. They didn't even, they didn't even change the name. Yeah. The products aren't as good, but it's, you know, we're not a photocopy brand. We try and do things our way. We try and, we try and be the best version of ourselves. And um, we want to be the absolute best product for the customer. And we are heavily driven by trying to take care of them and make great products for them. And, you know, our whole core mission and focus is around the mental health of, uh, of men, which we think is a, a topic that is not discussed nearly as often as it needs to be. I was actually going to ask you about that next. Um, you know, I, I've seen you and the community involvement that Roan has partaken in. Um, what's the link with regards to uh, the mental health crisis in particular with men? Um, and what are you doing um, as a company right now? Yeah. So um, uh, me and my co-founders had um, quite a few connections to uh, to those that have... Um, struggled with mental health and we had had our own mental health journeys. But um, in particular, uh, one of my, my dearest, closest uh, friends um, had, uh, had really dealt with a ton of addiction issues. And um, when we looked at it, I looked, you know, I, I had two sons at the time. I now have three sons. Um, between my brother and I, who now run the company, we have five boys. And we wow. started to we started to consider, you know, what is the state of the country that they're growing up in? And you know, this is not a political thing. This is really just about, you know, are these boys growing up being taught to have confidence, being taught to be kind and thoughtful? And we were really concerned about the statistics that we were seeing, and they've only gotten worse since the pandemic. Men are three and a half to four times more likely to commit suicide than women are. Um, They're 35% less likely to seek professional help when dealing with issues like addiction, anxiety, and uh, feelings of of suicide. And what that means is that we are losing fathers, husbands, brothers, sons at an alarming rate. We have the highest percent rate of preventable deaths in this country due to um, addiction and and suicide. And it's a real problem that, again, we're just not tackling enough. And part of the issue is exactly what I'm talking about, that when we talk about mental health, the first thing we end up talking about is the disease state. We talk about suicide, we talk about addiction, and the reality is, is that minimizes um, the suffering that a lot of people have or the opportunity that a lot of people have when they say, well, I'm not suicidal and I haven't been diagnosed with depression, so I don't have a mental health problem. But that's, that's the problem. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's that when we talk about physical fitness, we don't immediately go to cancer and diabetes. We talk about movement. We talk yeah. about exercise. We talk about hydration. We talk about sleep. And when we talk about mental health, we should talk about mental fitness. We should talk about the fact that everybody, everybody, everybody should be doing something for their mental fitness 
every single day in the same way that we encourage people to do something for their physical fitness and their physical health every day. And it's the, it's the ignoring of that. It's the fact that we have minimized so many parts of this that help like people sleep less than they used to. They go outside far less than we used to. Those two things alone account for a significant amount of our, uh, of our mental fitness, our mental health. So at Roan, we're trying to change the conversation on that and trying to help people balance the importance of both physical fitness and mental fitness, which is very different than most activewear brands who talk about running faster, jumping higher, lifting more weights, uh, be more manly. And um, we, think that, we think that you need both to, to live a balanced and full life. Nate, that is so critical. And I'm so glad that you know you shared all, all that over the last three minutes because that truly encapsulates what this podcast is trying to do right now. And so, you know, you talked a little earlier about how there's always going to be competitors out there, especially in a business like yours. But what truly distinguishes you and what truly distinguishes the mission of Roan is everything you all are doing in that space. Um, I want to thank you for coming on board and for sharing that. I, you know, I, To all the listeners out there, if you didn't catch anything, rewind and listen to the last three minutes right there and listen to what Roan is doing to bring awareness to a topic that isn't talked about as much as it should be. So thank you so much for coming on board. I really appreciate it. Honestly, we could have spent hours talking about every step of every step of your journey, but I'm so grateful for your time, and I'm, I'm grateful that you've shared your story with us today. Thanks so much, Bishoy. It's been uh, a privilege to be on, and I'm grateful for the work that you're doing. It takes it takes all of us, right? It takes all of us to make an impact, and I'm just grateful for the attention and the microphone that you've given me to to share with uh, with your audience. Absolutely. Thank you for listening today. If you enjoyed this episode of the Mile 40 Podcast, go ahead, subscribe, leave a review, and share the word. Thank you for being a part of the Mile 40 family. And let's unite in showing the world that comebacks are always greater than setbacks.